Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, the podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Martin Farek, who is Associate Professor at the University of Libarit. Uh, we'll be speaking about a brand new 2022 University of Chicago publication, University of Chicago Press publication um, called India in the Eyes of Europeans, Conceptualization of Religion and Theology and Oriental Studies. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Raj, it's my honor. Thanks for the uh, invitation. My pleasure. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the backstory, the genesis? How did this project arise for you or this interest? I, it's a two-lines issue because uh, since my childhood, somehow I got attracted to India, which is not so common in, in the, uh, back then communist Czechoslovakia. But I somehow started to look uh, at what is going on. And uh, since my first journey to India, which happened in 1994, I started to realize that uh, in, uh, here in our both scientific and popularizing literature, we got something terribly wrong. Because many of the claims uh, that you typically learn at school, you typically hear in media, documentaries, all that, all that image of India simply got broken for me during the very first journey. And then later on, when I started to do my own research uh, during the doctorate and so on and so forth, other trips to India, uh, that was the beginning. There was a very important uh, stage, very important part of that. And this is when I met uh, colleagues uh, from Professor Balagangadhar's uh, Comparative Science of Cultures program, because I found the folk which was uh, very sincere, had similar interests, and also lots of uh, interesting insights. So that that was uh, another important stage. uh, Because I saw quite some problems in the, let's say, Orientalist discourse, and also in what uh, many of the so-called post-colonial people uh, published. But I was rather groping uh, on the side of solutions to the problems. And then uh, that, that, that scientific research done by Professor Balagangadhar and others uh, seemed promising. So I decided, oh, let me test some of the main claims. So for some of our listeners, um, this may be evident, whether our, whether uh, on behalf of uh, scholarly or lay listeners or everything in between. And for some, it might be um, slightly intriguing, uh, problematic novel. But, you know, what is... Um, uh, what have you found problematic about this caricature that, you, that you're exploring in your research? You know, tell us a bit about the caricature or the, the legacy, um, whether from uh, in terms of um, scholarship or in terms of uh, public reception of quote unquote India that you're engaging in your work. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. <laughs> so let me pick up one example. Uh, somehow today people get uh, an impression that there are problems with Hinduism, right? That, uh, nevertheless, we still have many courses on Hinduism and many documentaries and books are published. So my first experiences in India uh, really lent me to think about how all these diverse traditions, very different people, all kinds of ritual, how can they put it together as one Hindu tradition, right? And even when you talk to Vaishnavas, you find differences, the fundamental differences with the so-called Shaivas, etc., etc. And then when you go to the level of discussing it from, let's say, scientific point of view, I found two crucial problems that I am discussing in the book, uh, chapter one. Uh, the first problem is that the kind of uh, explanations given really do not fit in very well with the reality. Yeah. So one example, everybody learns at school that Vedas are, are the sacred scriptures of the Hindus. There are fundaments, no Vedas and Upanishads, this is the fundament. But when you talk to many Indians, yeah, they heard of Veda, maybe, <laughs> and that's all. And uh, when, you, when you look uh, at the historical record, the same holds true. You know, Britons, uh, people like Horace Heyman Wilson and many others, the early Orientalists, they started to complain. Look, you Indians, even Brahmins do not know Vedas properly. How, how so? You know, so th there is a very uh, strange uh, uh, gap between what is described in the Orientalists' books and what we teach today, still today, and uh, what is really going on in the real world. And that's what science should pick up and somehow try to settle. You now, if we have an explanation and it doesn't fit, well, what shall we do about that? And there is another level. Uh, if you read properly what ha has been written about the so-called Hinduism, the more I read, the more I got really fascinated because it contains a bunch of contradictions, internal contradictions. So in, in terms of uh, building a good explanation, which theories uh, should do. Some people do not like the word theory today, etc. It doesn't matter. But uh, anyway, we try to explain what's really going on in the world, in human society, in different cultures. There you will find in the Orientalist account uh, that the same people very often say, look, uh, Hindus, they can believe whatever they want. Well, in fact, Raj, I was quite fascinated because reading it uh, first as a youngster, I started to think, wow, such a wonderful religion. You know, you can be, they say explicitly, this is a quote, you know, Hindus can be uh, agnostics. Hindus can be atheists. Hindus can be even Marxists. Some are dualists and some are monotheists. And that's it. Some are polytheists. So I, I thought, oh my God, such a fascinating religion. You can believe whatever you want or you don't believe in anything you are still in. Now, how is that possible? Well, where is the contradiction? The contradiction is in the fact that many of the Orientalists including our own Czech tradition that I settled out to criticize and really look deep in, uh, they say at the same time, oh, but wait, wait, wait. In fact, there is a core 
of Hindu beliefs, and then they go and define them. And again, uh, another question is how does that relate to reality? And there it doesn't hold very much. But the, this is fascinating. You know, the same people are saying, look, Hindus, they can believe whatever they want. But at the same time, and then, of course, when you look at it properly, how can you put atheist against the monotheist, for example? I mean, I, I mean they, they, these are, it's a bunch of uh, terribly contradictory and mutually exclusive worldviews and ideas and all kinds of uh, um, debates involved. It's a huge topic. But suddenly all is in one uh, plate together. And yeah, that's what Hinduism is. Doesn't matter. But the same people, in fact, still often implicitly insist, no, 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 there must be a core beliefs in Hinduism. So that was the second problem I found, for example. So tell us a bit about, you mentioned that, um, quote, you were critiquing your own Czech tradition or, or context. And of course, that features heavily in the book. Say a bit more about that. And um I mean, there's so many directions in which we can take this conversation, but um, would you say, um, how do I phrase this? What do you most wish for this work to be a corrective to to a particular ideological movement, to a particular scholarly trend, to a particular uh, public characterization? You know, what would you hope for this work to correct? Wow. <laughs> wow, what I would really love to see is that the book will steer a larger international debate, very serious debate about some of the uh, fundaments of, of the ideas, explanations that are still on the table. These are called, we call them sometimes the dominant view. You know, the view that India has been a pagan culture, then Islam came in, and then Christianity came in, and the Hindus copied that all very well. Uh, there is a caste system there for 3,000 years, or good knows for, for, for what. And there is all the textbook story, which still, with some debates and some criticism, uh, holds uh, rather firmly on. Yeah. You, you discuss that with colleagues from Japan, the same happens. You discuss that with colleagues from Toronto, the same. You go to Italy, strong Orientalist tradition, the same general learning and teaching about India. So my first hope is that people uh, will say, ah, hold on for a while. What is it that is going on in, uh, in, in the uh, descriptions of India that we, we think are scientific and that they are true also? So that, that oh, I know it's a huge and ambitious uh, goal, but uh, I am putting some arguments, quite a lot of evidence I did uh, found. So yeah, I am hoping for a good discussion. Well, the best books I've said this before, I believe the best books are beginnings. More than ah, right. Right, 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 right. Um, um. So, what are some of the conceptualizations on behalf, quote unquote, in the eyes of Europeans that you are engaging, and then? Could you also maybe comment on when you say in the eyes of Europeans, do you mean in his in an, in an historical context, such as you mentioned in passing H. H. Wilson? Um, um, uh, do you mean uh, present day scholars? You know, 
which European in in which Europeans' eyes, and, and what are some of these uh, conceptualizations um, that serve as lenses through which they view India? Right. Uh, well, this is uh, the. Well, let me start with a bit of explanation to answer properly to your question. Uh, what Professor Balagangadhar and the research program he forged put on the table is a in-depth uh, looking into the grounds, to the very base uh, base of whatever happened in Oriental studies anthropology, history, and many other disciplines looking at India. Many of them were later on in, in North America uh, bunched together and they are called uh, South Asian studies today. But when you look properly, they go to the very same roots. And these roots are in Europe. And of course, they were then expanded to North America, other parts of the world. But in terms, I am now talking not so much geographically, but culturally, in, in terms of culture, uh, Professor Balagangadhar is looking into the Christian uh, origins, forgotten, secularized, uh, and very often not understood properly even here in our Western circles. Yeah, But to give an example, uh, we learn still typically that people, early Orientalists like William Jones, Henry Thomas Kollebrug, you mentioned Wilson and others, those guys really started the scientific research, right? They, they are typically portrayed as uh, people who uh, honestly digged and quite objectively started to describe India, translated uh, different scriptures like Manava, Dharma Shastra, etc. etc. Well, what I discovered, uh, of course, following some other research, but then going a bit further, is that those people, in fact, operated within a very clearly defined Christian con uh, framework of ideas, right? Their questions were theological. So, that, you know, that's why theology. Their questions were uh, about the original monotheism. And this, I mean, this is a thing that didn't uh, really stop fascinate me till today how generation after generation of the European intellectuals of Western, because the same interest was imported then to the, to the North America and other parts of the world, they searched for original monotheism. They were convinced based on the biblical story that God somehow was perceived also outside of Judea, you know, and outside of, uh, of the Mediterranean, let's say, where the original uh, Abrahamic religions, as we call them, sprout out. So, uh, they were convinced those people had some access to, to the revelation, indirect, direct, whatever. And uh, when you look properly at the people like William Jones and others, their questions were picked up uh, and then carried on uh, uh, right up till today. So my uh, answer to your question is not about a particular school, because there are many, uh, about a particular group of Orientalists or anthropologists or ethnographs, even historians, but about a very deep common framework, which originally was really rooted in the strong belief uh, in the truth of biblical revelation. Right? That, yeah, does that make sense? 
Uh, yes, it, it makes sense to me. Um, uh, and my hope is that that makes sense to, to many of the listeners as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the, what is some of the conditioning? What, is some, what are some of the concepts, uh, uh, th- theological or otherwise, that filtered um, this European gaze? Right. Oh, there, there are there are many. Uh, uh, well, I can refer to another example, but because uh, we looked uh, at idolatry, huh? that's uh, something that uh, today people, even in uh, common parlance, they got it as uh, yeah, you can sense there is something wrong if you say you are an idolater, or something is an idol, right? Still, people get a sense ah, there is something wrong with that. But many do not go much beyond this. And even many Christian believers, to my surprise, are found out to have vague ideas what idolatry precisely means. So then you have to go back to Augustine and others, the early church fathers, but it didn't change in, in theologies much since then. Idolatry means that you're worshipping the false god or gods. Uh, meaning that instead of paying uh, uh, attention instead of worshiping and obeying the one only true God, the creator of the world, etc., etc., as, as it, the ideas have been developed in, in Judeo-Christian let's say, discourse, uh, you pay attention to something else and somebody else. And typically theologians say it's the object or a being of this world. And that's idolatry, right? Even like uh, worshipping powerful kings, for example, and that, that was typically used. Look, people uh, were respecting very important and very strong and powerful rulers. And then, then since they, they got the idea, these are somehow special beings and to worship them instead of the true God, that's idolatry also, right? And then uh, looking uh, into the way uh, this world is used and understood, or it's a concept, right? Uh, is understood by uh, people in India. You start to realize, ha, huh, uh, it's very difficult even today. I am now speaking from my own personal experience. It's very difficult for people in India to get the right meaning. Some of them got it because of a deep theological training, but this, these are very rare exemptions. So I, I will give you an example. Right? Uh, there was a delegation from a Czech university I helped to co-organize uh, in Ahmedabad. And we are coming in. Uh, Ahmedabad colleagues uh, decided, ah, very nice. Let's present for the Czech people something about our culture. Very well. So there is a PowerPoint going on, uh, quite a typical of the sort. Uh, wonderful. But then at one slide, you see a small statue and puja items, etc., etc. And the colleague with the beautiful big smile says, look, the Indians are idolaters. And then watching that situation with all the research that happened, I was literally stunned because I said, oh, this was 2015, right? 2015. So I said, ah, okay. So uh, in the Czech audience, you saw how they are disturbed and are not quite getting what's going on. Whereas the colleague, obviously, he had an idea that he just says, yeah, we have, uh, we have that practice 
where statues or sometimes pictures are put in, in front and then we use puja or other kinds of ritual there. That's all. And then he, he for this is idolatry, which is not. Right? So that's an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating in that um, on, on the, uh, let's take a, uh, maybe a, a bit of a step back. And so when we're teaching religion, which can be quite a hazardous thing in various contexts, ah, right, right. whether undergraduate <laughs> or, or continuing studies, right, you know, right. technical terms such as myth or cult in a technical sense, mm. they have deep pejorative uh, emotional import in in, 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 a, in a general sense. Uh, myth actually means sort of a, a falsehood or lie. Cult typically has to do with in a day in and day out sense, a cult right. is not something you'd want to be associated with. And yet these are tactical terms and perhaps two words such as for depending on who's using them and in what context, perhaps one can use the term idol as a technical term and yet idol and idolatry are laden with this this the, the judgment of falsity and blasphemy and right, impropriety right. and uncivility and so there's all that baggage and so clearly <laughs> clearly the encounter between uh, the key producers of knowledge about india <laughs> uh, the first great enterprises to produce knowledge about India, clearly, without question, um, that knowledge was filtered through value systems, uh, concepts, comparisons, the idea of Hinduism is very, or any ism, religious wise, is very much um, um, tied to uh, a Western notion of what religion is or how religion functions. Anyhow, enough from me more from you how is the book structured mm. ah, the uh, f- uh, first chapter is uh, in fact looking uh, into this question and this is how i can also explain how it's connected to the comparative science of cultures research program uh, now when you look at the debates today uh, people uh, often either look uh, into the, let's say, classical orientalist studies and some anthropology co- connected with that, or they look uh, into post-colonial criticism, right? So that, that's a, a typical debate. Now, in, in some smaller countries of Europe, like my own, own homeland, it took a very different uh, uh, direction in the sense that many people started to tell me very early when I read Edward Said still as a student in the early 90s. And I thought, oh, there is something in that criticism. So look at other, uh, in, in them, Ronald and then in other books. And then uh, I started to talk to my teachers, back then very respected, even international respected uh, people like Dushan's Bavetel, for example. So they said, okay, I, there is something in it. But look, we, the smaller nations of Central Eastern Europe, we didn't have colonies, you know. So why, why should we uh, take the path of post-colonial studies? I mean, they are, let, let the, the British and the French, and let them, you know, uh, look critically at their own past. And in that sense, they quite dismissed the very important points that Said and others raised. 
I know it sounds a bit funny, but this is really what happened in, in several con- in, informal conversations, right? And also, uh, which is partially understandable, at least, uh, they didn't see much in terms of building a positive explanation in post-colonial criticism. Uh, so, all right. And then uh, uh, I decided to took a different step, a different course, and I said, well, right, we didn't have colonies, uh, but if there is something uh, in Professor Balangangaha's claim about the shared and common Christian grounds, I will find them also in the Czech, Slovak, Polish, and other Orientalist production. And this is what I did. And in fact, the more I digged in, the more I got fascinated how strongly it is present, uh, very often even explicitly, uh, but uh, sometimes implicitly in the debates, the way questions I raised, the kind of questions that are raised, right? So uh, this is discussed in the first chapter, and there I show also how exactly uh, our people followed up the early and later British, especially British Orientalists. That's chapter one. Uh, There there is uh, uh, another turn then uh, to another huge question, and this is uh, about historical consciousness. Uh, It's because I was trained as a historian. You know, my my master's was in fact in comparative history at Charles University in Prague. And uh, this question lurked in some of the debates, how uh, non-Western peoples and cultures really perceived their own past. Properly, you find out that there are just two camps fighting endlessly till today. Uh, one camp says, no, in, uh, India didn't have uh, historical consciousness proper. And another says it, it did. But that's why I found out it goes much deeper. And then I am showing much more importantly that it's still shaped uh, by uh, the, and it's constrained by the framework, again, of the original Christian understanding. Because the way Christian historiography dealt, or the whole understanding of, of, of humankind and its development in history, how it was dealt in, in Christian thought, uh, is fundamental to history today. So that, that's chapter two. Then I turned to, uh, to the hot debate about Aryans uh, and then what, what happened, what didn't happen. This chapter was meant more for the uh, Czech and Slovak, let's say, audience or Polish people who could more or less easily read uh, our language. So I gave rather an overview to some important points and comments that I found uh, rather startling in, in all the debate. But I, yeah, I, let, I left it in the book because some colleagues encouraged me that it will be informative still. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the final chapter is uh, on uh, uh, the question how early Bengali reformer Ramohan Roy or Rai, uh, understood the, the concept of religion and other uh, connected ideas uh, or whether he did not. And there is also a promising heuristics in that chapter uh, that I didn't develop myself, that I cannot claim that that part was uh, really a follow-up of one uh, conference discussion. Uh, and the idea again comes from Professor Balagangadhar and Jakub Deruver. Uh, so, yeah. What sources did you look at to write this book? 
Yeah, many. <laughs> of course, obviously. I mean it, more, uh, so, uh, uh, many indeed, but what, what sorts of sources? No, it, yeah, you have uh, both uh, the older uh, production, uh, British uh, Orientalists, but also some German, uh, Czech. But I, I also looked uh, at some theoretical books. Uh, I looked at articles written by historians, anthropologists, so uh, qu- quite wide, uh, quite widely, I threw the net. Let's see. Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you while undertaking this research? Hmm. Yes, few things. Uh, the the, fir- the first surprising thing was. Uh, how much of the uh, originally Christian-informed discussions and questions are present in very recent work. Because I knew some of it, but when you dig in, read and reread and think about it uh, and give a lot of time to some material, uh, it became more and more visible to me, the the kind of questions I raised. And there were many uh, very clear uh, problems also with uh, the way uh, uh, the original Christian concepts are still used. So, you know, for example, people still talk about uh, sin, although pop definitely is not sin from what I could get after years of looking into what pop would be in Indian traditions. It's not sin. Definitely not. Then uh, people talk about God and angels and heaven and hell and punishment, you know, so many concepts. And that's the thing. You start to see not one or two individual concepts, but you you start to see the clusters of ideas, the whole structure. And I would even say the meta structure of of ideas. Then uh, uh, the surprising thing is how... Uh, some of the authors I looked into, uh, in fact, stated here and there, yeah, there is a problem. You know, these are originally Christian concepts, but then they happily go and use them. <laughs> and sometimes only under the pretext that you can, uh, in some mysterious way, just generalize the concept, which is a funny idea. I mean, they can from the point of view of philosophy, you generalize and then, yeah, okay, why not? Fine. So they knew there are problems, but they still happily uh, happily go with the problematic uh, concepts, questions, and whole structures of explanation. So that, that's quite fascinating, isn't it? You see the problem, but you perpetuate the problem. <laughs> uh, a, on the one hand, it's, it's a convention, um, uh, perhaps even a scholarly convention, on the other hand, it's so difficult for any of us to think outside. Uh, you know, we tend to think of the mind as a shelf onto which you know books are placed metaphorically, and yet yeah. the mind itself, the, the shelf itself, was was crafted somehow. You know, the, our very ways of seeing and thinking are, are a result of our conditioning, primarily our cultural conditioning, and our individual experiences, and it's very difficult to think outside of that paradigm. So. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a, a slight uh, an anecdote that might be related. So I do a fair bit of life counsel work with people. And uh, the vast majority of the people I work with are from a, a Christian or a Jewish background. And when they say the word God, they particularly mean the, 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 the 
personage of the divine figure in Genesis and Exodus, right? When I work with someone of Indic descent, regardless of their faith, when they say God, I have to dig deeper because they might mean Brahman, they might mean right. Devi, they might right. mean Shiva, Hanuman, right. Krishna. Right. And so, yeah. and similarly, when Indians use the word sin, they mean Papa, not sin right. in, a, in a theological exactly. sense. <laughs> So it's utterly fascinating and 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 um, fraught with uh, conditioning and assumptions uh, about what these these concepts mean. One thought that comes to mind is that I feel it's quite wise to use indigenous terms and categories where possible in this context because they force you to think mm-hmm. alongside tradition, right? Darshana mm-hmm. rather than philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, Karma, which doesn't, you know, karma in, 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 in a classical Upanishadic sense doesn't really have a, a Western corollary. Um, uh, Papa, they force you, you know, um, looking at uh, the, you know, I look at um, narrative through this this duad of poverty versus nivrity. There's no real, it forces you to think along with tradition, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, of course, uncomfortable. <laughs> um, what would you, who do you think would most benefit from reading this book? Huh. Raj, may I first uh, respond to your thought? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a conversation. Absolutely. Very yes. nice. Very nice. You see, uh, I, in fact, have been utilizing the same strategy you just described. So sometimes I put in the classroom, especially uh, some of the uh, Indian terms, but I do it also to just incite people to say, hey, hey, what do you mean? really. Because when you say darshana uh, to, I don't know, American, Canadian, Czech, French uh, boys and girls coming out of the secondary school, what they would think about darshana, no? It's like saying uh, blah, blah, right? The same thing. So, yeah, I think uh, there is something in uh, in using it as a tool to point out uh, to much deeper problem, and that is a problem of uh, different conceptual frameworks, Right. So because then we can start a, a much more interesting discussion. And this is a true challenge. I will end here, but I just point out it's a true challenge to pick up any of the theoretical Indian terms. Uh, you mentioned Brahman, there's Chitta, there is Manas, Buddhi, all that. Right. And then, then there is a real challenge how to explain that. Uh, uh, in a very interesting and really good way, uh, whether we really start uh, get some proper understanding and whether we can do it in English or other Western languages, right? So that's a... you know, as you're speaking, what comes to mind is I find so much of my work at present, I do a fair bit of teaching in different spaces, right. Right. continuing studies teaching, number of platforms. Um, so much of what I do perhaps instinctively or unconsciously is translating, but not translating words, translating context, translating concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, I was doing a, where was it? Oh, at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, I was giving a talk um, on on karma and rebirth. This, this radical, profound cornerstone to to all of the darshanas and really, you know, for the most part, the, the, the current Indic world. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, and in addition to, you know, A, explaining the mechanics of it as per a couple of the darshanas and explaining um, in a common sense way why anybody would begin to adopt this worldview, 
one of the things I found myself stressing is it doesn't matter whether you adopt this worldview or not, you won't be able to understand all things Indic <laughs> without adopting it as a lens while you're studying within that ecosystem. So it's not a question of adopting a worldview personally, but it seems to me that one needs to adopt the worldview for the sake of study. Think along alongside a particular worldview. Anyhow, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to solve the world's problems in one podcast, but these are just thoughts that came to mind. <laughs> ah, Raj, in fact, I'm suggesting we pick up the last uh, uh, ideas of yours uh, for a separate discussion, if you wish. <laughs> sure. <laughs> not I'll necessarily, speak to... right, not sure. necessarily a podcast, but as a good discussion we can have. Sure, that. sure, sure. Yeah. I'll happily perhaps do a talk at your school. Sure, or a private discussion, no problem. Um so shall so I is, come back to the question who will benefit most from... Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll circle back to that because it'll. It, the reason I ask these questions is so that folks who are listening understand that we're speaking to them and, mm-hmm. you know, this would benefit them. Um, what sorts of readers or subfields might benefit from this work? Well, I will start with the big hope. Uh, I really tried to write it quite clearly, even for let's say, generate a general educated public. I know that some people will find some parts more difficult. Yeah, that's uh, that's clear. But my, my hope is that anyone who is really seriously interested in the discussion about India today and uh, all the related items will find something interesting there. And then uh, when you ask in terms of the study fields, then, uh, yeah, uh, definitely... Indology people, theologians, anthropology people. The chapter one chapter is mainly for historians, I would say, because some others will have to read a bit uh, to start understanding why I put uh, some authors in front and others I didn't mention even, because some uh, the, the the general approach of of my book is a uh, quite wide uh, uh, sketches and uh, quite. Uh, uh, big questions that I just opened. And of course, you cannot handle some of them with a lot of other relevant discussions and other lines that are connected to the research. So yeah, but that's that's the public. Uh, yeah, one information is there. there uh, the book appeared originally only in Czech, right? So uh, there is some experience and some people uh, who used it kept telling me that it's useful for students. So I hope so. <laughs> it's definitely written in an accessible style. I will say that for sure. It's, right, thank it's, you. The style is definitely accessible and organized and a number of uh, numbered points <laughs> so the reader can follow along. Um, I, I'd like to ask you a question. Well, let me ask you this. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Is this work that, you, is this a line of work that you're continuing in terms of your research campaign or have you moved on to something else in terms of the next uh, interest or project? Well, the, the, the framework remains. Uh, I am really uh, very much willing to probe and go uh, further with some of the interesting and important questions that Professor Balagangadhar and uh, others raised within the Comparative Science of Cultures uh, research program. And at the moment, uh, we are looking at some issues that are connected uh, with discussion about caste. The, the final question I'd like to ask you, um, 
unless there's anything else you'd like to touch on about the book and feel free to absolutely is if I may ask you to indulge in a line of conjecture about the potential parallels or applicability or relevance of this historical work with the moment of history that we're living through in this, in these times. Wow. What a question. Forgive me. I had, I apparently know. I had enough coffee this morning, so yeah. <laughs> I'll have less next time. Well, I think it's an, it's an important question. Uh, research uh, uh, we have done over the years is telling me more and more about a lot of problems on the side of the West, let's say, uh, uh, in terms of understanding or even starting to understand afresh what really uh, India was about, what it is about, how, how to do things properly, and how to discuss even some of the important issues today properly. So uh, in this sense, although, uh, yeah, from one point of view, it's very much a book uh, uh, on the line of history of ideas, and I'm developing some criticism. Still, much of what is criticized is the, the received view today. And you see politicians acting on that view. You see uh, people in the United Nations taking it for granted, uh, especially this caste debate that we opened up with another book, which was a joint effort published by Paul Grave and, and more recently republished by Manohar. Uh, it's called the Western Foundations of the Caste System, right? So there uh, we started to really show that this kind of uh, seemingly only historical research is very re relevant. And when you look at the importance of India today in the international arena. It's definitely a rising power, politically, economically, and otherwise. And uh, uh, my hope is that this kind of research will help uh, to really rethink and reconceptualize the ways we engage with each other. And uh, I mean, 21st century uh, didn't start well, I will be now very open about my views on, on what's going on. I think that there is a lot of problems and violence and much of that is rooted in a certain kind of uh, Western focus and Western policy making. And now what's going on today and how, how we deal uh, with, uh, with the problems that rise uh, all around the globe. Uh, in India uh, will be an important player. There is no doubt about that. But when you look at the way uh, politicians, diplomats, and many others are dealing with India as a culture. And they still follow the same, the received view that I am, I am analyzing in the, book, in the book. So I think uh, we hope for a very different kind of a dialogue. And uh, by such research, it should be also a different kind of dialogue. Uh, the, the dialogue that is really symmetrical, you know, like we are, we are partner cultures, not that the West is there ruling the show, even intellectually, you now ruling the show intellectually, and then uh, others more or less just follow. What would I you mean, say to that, Raj? What would you say? Oh, there, there's so much to be said, and of course, it's not, I don't see it as my role to, to evaluate or really weigh in too much on the podcast. I'm it's a space to engage ideas. Certainly mm. much of what you say is resonant with me insofar as mm. um, insofar as our need 
to collectively co-author systems where there's space for everyone. Uh, also, in terms of my own scholarship, um, he made the mistake of asking me a question. So here I go. In terms of my own <laughs> scholarship, um, what's been a challenge is that, you know, I'm trained at the Western Academy. I, I value the system of knowledge production. I, right. This is the institution. I, I, I live in this great nation of Canada, right, right, right. right? And so for me personally, different people have different MOs. My dharma, as I see it, is innovation, not rejection, is, is working within oh. a system to create space. And so my scholarship on the Puranas is trying to correct what was begun essentially by H.H. H. Wilson in 1840, who said, the Vishnu Purana, the rest of them are useless because they're all corruptions of some imagined previous text. And the Shastra has been corrupted by Brahmins. And it's a, it's a, it's a pardon my French, it's an ass backwards way of looking at the Puranas. That's never how mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, constituted or, or probably how they've functioned. And so, you know, at times I'm critical of historicism or philology as a corrective. I, I deeply respect those enterprises, but I see it as my role to create space to celebrate narrative for literary readings, for, for, for spiritual exegesis, not, not to jettison and, and forget the past and all that was good that came before, but just to mm-hmm. expand it just to enrich it, not to point out the, the, the pitfalls of, of our forebears to, to just critique them ad nauseum. They need to be critiqued without question. And certain people in certain bodies have much more luck critiquing them without being branded as troublemakers, in my personal experience anyhow. Nevertheless, they need to be critiqued, but nevertheless, they need to be honored for the work that they've done. Mm. And so my view very much is a middle path between the past and the future in that regard. But enough, no more questions from me, otherwise we'll never finish. Uh, <laughs> feel free to respond if you'd like. Um, and, yeah, and I, would like to, I would like to respond. You raised uh, two things at least. Uh, I'm hoping that I didn't create the uh, impression of just rejecting the Western Orientalism, etc. No, not for me at all. No. That wasn't my impression of the book. And also, uh, unfortunately, I'm very good at reading people <laughs> and affect. So that wasn't my impression of your approach at all. Uh, but no. please feel free to continue that thought. Ah, very good. Very good. Yeah, because uh, I think that many of them were really very serious scholars. And in fact, what you can see is that the, uh, especially the 19th or older 19th century, let's say, people, uh, I would find them uh, uh, in terms of science, because you raised the second issue, uh, the good that the Western system of research and education uh, really uh, brought about in, in many centuries of its own development. And I'm trying to utilize hopefully the best of that in, in the book also, very critically, but also honestly engaging with some problems. Uh, th- this, is, uh, this is something uh, that I also noticed. Uh, some of the 19th century people are much more critical to their own work. You, when you look, uh, for example, at their discussion about caste, uh, you you found out, uh, yeah. See, we have we have many problems. You know, the, the, this account doesn't hold true, and this is just an idea. And they themselves warned the reader, this is just a very tentative statement, and we don't know. Maybe we will reject that sooner or later. So some of those scholars were 
true critical minds in that sense, very careful, you know, stating things uh, as hypotheses, as it should be. These are just theories. Oh, if they, if they uh, felt on the face, okay, we will build a better one, fine. But now what we see, especially in, in the after World War II period and in the last two decades, I, I saw some stronger trends in that direction, is really uh, a rather rabid ideology that is spreading even in academia. So with some people, it's very difficult to open uh, some debates. I found out that quite startling when you ask about that, you know, the, the startling issue. So that, that, that's another thing. So, yeah, we, we don't agree with Horace Heyman Wilson, but as you say, we can learn from critical approach, his critical approach itself. Sure, absolutely. And I, I feel that these figures such as him probably had much more openness to their ideas mm -hmm. being corrected, mm -hmm. but they've been canonized as patron saints of the Purana, ah, et cetera, ah, et cetera, et cetera. And so what's difficult is engaging with scholars for whom these are devatas, in a sense, unconsciously. <laughs> and so right, right. ironically, it's, 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 it's an ideological religious impulse, as it were, <laughs> behind the scholarship that's, it's, 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 you can take, I can taste it right so it's it's palpable to me but it's difficult to engage you know on, on a on rare occasion on rare occasion um i've gotten someone refuse an invitation to appear on the podcast because they fallaciously thought that by me having some other guests i was in their camp <laughs> oh. and so and so they didn't quite grok that my dharma is to showcase the production of knowledge about yeah. uh, Indian religions yeah. um, at this fine uh, conglomeration called New Books Network, whose mission it is is public education. And so that attitude itself told me something about the mindset of the individual, about certain uh, alcoves within academic enterprise. Mm. Certainly, I've been described as user-friendly, to say the least. I oh. don't critically engage in people's work. My my job is to support what they're doing because there's an audience for everyone's work, right? Um, and but every once in a while, every once in a while, uh, uh, I, I, two or three times, one one individual said to uh, someone I was co-editing a paper with, uh, "You know how how could you work with him? He's had those people on his podcast." <laughs> to myself. <laughs> that doesn't quite work that way. Mm. It doesn't quite work that way. And there are people capable of conversation and engaging ideas for the sake of ideas and, and thank the gods. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise we wouldn't be here. Um, I've taken oh, this, this is very unfortunate uh, to know. It's been rare. It's been extremely rare, extremely yeah. rare. Less than 2% of the people I've invited have come back with that. But okay. the fact that they've said that indicates to me that, Right. There are factions. There are such factions, and then it's fine. It's fine. Everyone, everyone is entitled to their perspective. Um, I want to thank you for appearing on the podcast today. This was fun. Thank you very much, and my best wishes to your great job. Thank you. Take good care. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Martin Farik about a brand new University of Chicago Press publication, uh, India in the Eyes of Europeans. Until next time, uh, keep listening, uh, keep reading and keep contemplating the lenses through which we see the world, uh, past and present. Take care.